This episode of Little Bit of Life podcast is brought to you by 310 Soap Company. I am so excited to share this company that I found on social media. They have the most incredible products. And when I'm saying incredible, I truly mean it. Their motto is be an original, ditch the toxins with paleo skincare. Shop vegan collection on their website at 310soapcompany.com. I am in love with their body butter as well as all of their products. I have been using the Body Glow. It is a body oil. I'm telling you, run, run and get this product. Make sure you check them out at 310soapcompany.com. It lasts, it works, and it's just better for you. Welcome to Little Bit of Life Podcast with your host, Tabitha, better known as Little. A lot of you may know her from social media, but Little is shown off the apps. Dedicated to having the real, raw, and occasional chats about what we seem to think, but don't say. Special guests will join in along the way that have impacted her in a profound way. Very little is left off limits, so sit back, enjoy, and here's your host. I've been studying the Chris Isaac case for years, probably since the day it happened. I didn't work directly on the case. I didn't want to get involved. I wanted to live my nice little life in St. Louis. But I became involved because I had reservations that Victoria did the actual shooting. I know when Victoria's lying because I'm Victoria's sister. Now, one where's your emergency? Uh, I'm at 365 North Church Street. I just killed my husband. You just killed your husband? Yeah, I shot him six times, 12 times in the head. Her name's Victoria Isaac. She called and said that she had shot her husband, and when we walked in there and seen that, it was pretty obvious that's what had happened. Hey guys, welcome in another episode, a little bit of Life Podcast with Little. We talk about those topics that need to be discussed, we think outside the box, and as the motto says, it's everything that we seem to think but don't say. For those that probably are sitting around in the evenings, maybe on your weekends, fall weather is coming, we're starting to watch a lot of documentaries. We're watching a lot of series on that amazing app that we all seem to have, Netflix. But with that comes the question of what you're watching is not only someone's life, but it's such a connection with the community. I have an amazing guest on with me today. Her name is Betty. And if you have seen the Netflix season three series of I Am a Killer, not only will you understand who she is, but what she is so adamant about getting her story of her sister across. So Betty, welcome in. How are you doing today? Well, thank you for having me. I'm doing fine. Enjoying the fall weather out here in Seattle. I live in Arizona for now, getting ready to move to Texas, and I am ready for this fall weather. I feel like we kind of got into the fall weather, and then it kind of snuck back into summer. We just keep going back and forth. So for those that may not have not only seen the episode, but also you're an author and you wrote a book about this topic, and I don't want to kind of 
ruin that experience. I want people to really go and read the book and see your viewpoint. Um, But for those that are listening, each year in the United States, there's more than 8,000 people that are convicted of murder. And out of that 8,000, only 10% are women. When we sit and really think about those numbers, we think about all of those that have maybe possibly confessed. And out of that, 50% have confessed to their crime. And we're here to talk about Betty's sister. Her name is Victoria. And she was um, convicted uh, to life with 25 years. I highly suggest you guys go and watch this Netflix episode. But give us a little bit of backstory. I know Netflix really dives into the backstory of the childhood and stuff. And I think that's very important. So can you share a little bit about Victoria and, and your upbringing as well? Right. Um, well, um, Victoria and I, we never had, we were the youngest of eight kids and there's five different fathers. So we have a different father, but our mom never allowed us to have anything to do with the father. So um, we were, she was just my sister. I never thought of her as a half sister. Uh, and and um, she was intellectually deficient. She had a lot of issues growing up with school and I was six years younger than her. So, and I love school. We couldn't have been two polar opposites, <laughs> but um, she had uh, undiagnosed, untreated conduct disorder when she was younger, which mm-hmm. led to a lot of issues because my mom growing up in the rural uh, Southeast Missouri um, didn't understand she didn't have an unruly child. She had a mentally uh, child with mental health conditions. So um, it led to a lot of abuse. And there's a lot of transgenerational abuse starting with my great grandfather to my grandmother to my mother. They were all... Um, convicted murders, not convicted, but they had committed murders. Mm -hmm. And um, my mom subsequently in my book, I detail what my mom confessed on her deathbed to me. And at the time I was a detective and I was like, please don't do this to me (laughs) because you know, I'm a detective. I have to, but um, uh, I uh, went into law enforcement um, because I felt like I could bring something different. I uh, was raised in high poverty, high crime in uh, rural Missouri. And, um, I found out that that raising that I had was the best law enforcement training I could have ever had. In the episode, you do discuss not only did you go into law enforcement, but you came, you became a chief of police. I have to to say congratulations. What an amazing opportunity to come. So many people obviously judge others from their past and their upbringing, but you've really shown that that doesn't have to be your path. You can change your life based on, like you said, I want better. I want more. And it really, and I always try not to cry because I watched this episode probably 500 times and I watched it with my mom who's in (laughs) law enforcement too. And there's a, there's a part of it where you state that your sister, and I'm trying not to cry, your sister went through so much so that you could have the life that you have now so that you could live a better life. And it's unbelievable to me because when we look at society of how people are raised and their upbringing, it's almost like this immediate just pass off of, you know, well, your life won't matter. Nothing you do is going to matter. And when you come from a childhood and a life in that home of abuse and alcoholism and stuff like that, people always just seem to think, well, this is just the life that you were born to live. And I'm so honored to have you on because you've changed that narrative for yourself. And I think it's amazing because now you're trying to change that for your sister, that maybe you're the voice now that's able to say, hey, maybe we need to look at this in a different angle and maybe have an open mind. Like what an amazing opportunity, chief of police. That's incredible to me. Thank you. I am an investigator now. I uh, I got injured on duty, so I have to just do investigations, fraud investigations. So that's pretty boring. But uh, my uh, I, I be- I'm a woman of faith, like I talked about, and I believe that 
um, I, I was meant to do this because my mom always wanted to be a, a police officer. She would have been great. But in growing up in the 50s in rural Missouri, not having the right last name and being labeled poor white trash, she didn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. So like our childhood bonding, because my mom was very abusive, but the, the best memories I have of my mom is sitting reading true crime detective magazines. And she would say, OK, tell me how this ends. Mm-hmm. Or we would be uh, following a car and she'd tell me, OK, what was that license plate? That was the best police training I could have ever had. Mm-hmm. So I and but I had really good teachers and my teachers, my fourth grade teacher still in my life. Oh, and wow. she said, Betty, you aren't what you come from. Mm-hmm. And so um, and then I had a lot of social anchors and uh, I, I get into the book like if my sister would have done this and I really would have looked. People say, oh, she's in denial. Well, if my sister really would have done this, I would have been like, do the crime, pay the time. You know, that's. But there was just so many inconsistencies, and there was a 911 call five days, okay, five days before the murder. My nephew, her son, who's schizophrenic, undiagnosed, uh, untreated schizophrenic, not undiagnosed, but five days, three of those days he's in in um, uh, in, uh, in care in a 96-hour hold. He gets out late the fourth day, and within 12 hours of him being released, Chris is dead. Hmm. So... That was that was a big red flag for me. And then his actions afterward, um, he was supposed to meet me and my husband, my ex-husband in Missouri, and because I live in Seattle, and to go to Vicky's sentencing hearing. She didn't have a trial. Anybody that says they read my book and she had a trial, they did not read my book because she did not have a trial. Mm-hmm. She took against my advice. She took a plea deal and got life plus 25 years. Mm-hmm. But um, and then he it was on a plane going to Europe where he got both of his feet cut off when he got to Europe. And so we've been having to deal with him being in Europe. And now he's in custody of German authorities for yet uh, another homicide. Mm. So um, my sister thought she was doing the right thing. because She is a protector. And, I, and writing the book was very cathartic for me because I went back and I realized how much of a protector she was. Because I, I didn't realize she had taken that role of um, being the literal whipping boy. Mm-hmm. Or a girl in this case, but because um, that was her role, that was just Vicky. Vicky made bad choices with men. Vicky didn't know how to behave. Vicky did this, and Vicky was always had black eyes from boyfriends and broken noses. And I'm thinking, oh my God, mm-hmm. she, she was victim. She was victimized from birth mm-hmm. because you know my mom. My mom was very hard on Vicky, and then she would take the the beatings from even my older sisters. So I had a realization one night. Uh, it was right after the murder and she was arrested and I was like, okay, do the crime, pay the time. Right. And I went and I had, and I dreamed about us being little girls and how my mom had tripped over one of my toys and she was you know, physically assaulting me. And, um, Vicky said, uh, Vicky got in the middle of it and started fighting with my mom. So I wouldn't get hit. And, um, and I thought, man, cause she called, crawled back in bed with me later on. And I said, why did you do that? She goes, I don't know. Maybe I deserved it. She didn't deserve that. She doesn't deserve life plus 25 years. Uh, I think, and and I'm never really, I'm critical to a point with law enforcement, but they're, you know, they have a job, they have a thing to do. I know I've been there. I've been on the other side. That's what made this so heartbreaking for me when they wouldn't listen to, you know, hey, I I get it. You're doing your job, but I want to tell you this. You know, I've went back, I've got the police reports for two years prior from my nephew. The escalation of violence was every few months he was hurting someone and you didn't want to listen. (laughs) 
with the episode, um, for those that may be listening and you haven't seen, we're going to give you just a little bit of backstory so you can kind of follow with us. Um, so your sister had your nephew, Kenny, um, when she was 17, she, she had him pretty early. And like you said, coming from a abusive home where, you know, especially with her IQ being 75 or under, they start to think, you know, maybe this is what love is. And to normalize love of, you know, if I do something wrong or I do something right, I'm punished. There's nothing in the, in the medium area of this is how I'm supposed to be treated. And she went through that cycle of, you know, going through abusive relationships, alcoholism, people that she felt this is just what love is supposed to feel like love is supposed to hurt. And always that almost punishment feeling of if I'd say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, this is just normal. So when um, she moved in with Chris and they met and they got married, um, your nephew, Kenny, did move in with them. And like it says, they were they had a very toxic household. It was something where I think he, from what I understood and and correct me if I'm wrong, he came in and she wanted that motherly role, but she had so much guilt of how she was as a parent early on. So do you feel that that's why possibly, especially with your book, do you feel that that's why she is in the position she's in, in that protective role always? Yes. Yeah. She's the most self-sacrificing person you'll ever meet. She'll give up her own happiness for anybody else. And she'll give anyone the shirt off her back. She always has. And that's why uh, the victim's family, who I have a very, um, uh, I don't want to victim shame, but I have a very tumultuous relationship over property that they wanted my sister's property. And that's why they don't care for me. So, but um, uh, they, um, even they said they didn't believe Vicky did this. And then, mm-hmm. you know, they they don't want to believe the other narrative that might actually really happen. But Vicky's always been that way. She's always been a protector of the people she loves. And uh, just like with me, just like, and my, my mom took that mother role away from her. My mom was the son and everybody revolved around her. My mom was a very violent person and very, you know, um, strict about uh, that. You listen to her. There's no talking back in our house. And, um, so mom took that, it took him away from her. And in the book, I describe exactly how mom did that and what it did to her. It broke her. It broke her even more than what she ever was because Kenny was the first thing that she ever thought she did right. And then um, with him and his untreated uh, mental health condition, it was, um, he, he didn't tell us about his diagnosis. I had to find out after the murder and um, it explained a lot. Um, but she thinks she's doing the right thing. And I've told her that I said, you don't have to have repentance anymore. You know, and, but she said, I made my bed. I'm going to lie in it. That was thing, um, famous words from our mom that she would say. With the 911 call, and it was, like you said, it was prior. Um, coming from a blue line family, it amazes me because I feel that, especially now, there's a lot of injustice in the world. And it's something that people hear something and they, they get an idea in their head and they, and they run with it. And no matter what evidence comes up or maybe what outside distractions come up, they just don't want to hear about it. They're just very tunnel visioned and, and it's done and over with. Listening to that 911 call of Kenny calling prior to this incident happening, it's incredible to me because he's voicing, you can hear just the panic in his voice of he's done, he can't do this anymore. And he is confessing at this point, which amazes me of I'm done. And I'm thinking about, you know, homicidal and suicidal thoughts. 
and I'm ready to kill my stepdad and my mom and then myself. And in the in the series, when they talk about it, you know, the prosecution is like, yeah, we heard it and it's we need to it's there. But it's like but that doesn't perk someone's interest. That amazed me because shortly after the incident happened where Chris has now been murdered and no one is looking. I mean, it's oh, well, there's no gunshot residue on his hands. There's okay, well. There was a time period within a couple of minutes that she waited to call 911. She called. But what happened in that little gray area is what I'm trying to get listeners to think. You know, she's a mother. This is her only child. Mothers have that intuition of protecting their children, no matter no matter at what cost. So when you see this and you hear this kind of go down, how did you feel when that was released, when that 911 audio was released, do you feel that police really paid attention or do you think they just kind of passed over it? No. And another thing in a 96 hour hold, which is that's what they do for psychiatric hold in Missouri. Why wasn't the guns taken out of the house? Why was that? That gun was right there on the, on the uh, thing. And he told him, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to kill him. And he said, I don't have any guns right now. I don't have any guns right now. I don't have any guns. He did have a gun. Why wasn't the house looked at? They only interviewed him for 40 minutes after the murder. The first interview they had with him, they didn't even have a recorder, a $10 recorder, which in this day and age, you know, if you come from a law enforcement background, you know, you have to have a recorder. I was one of the first chiefs to ever have a, a body cam in my patrol car because it protects me and the, and the public, you know, and I was like a $10 recorder. You didn't have that. And then you interviewed him for fit for 40 minutes. You let him leave and go clean up the crime scene. He cleaned that crime scene up. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't have a crime and they don't have a crime scene unit that went in there. And that's one of the things with rural law enforcement. I always like to talk about because it's a great opportunity to start out in rural law enforcement because you wear many hats. You do your, your own crime scene, fingerprinting, booking, blah, blah, blah. But then you have a major case like that. They said they activated the major case squad, but did they? If you're going to allow him in 40 to leave 40 minutes after the interview, and then you allowed the victim's family to go in and allegedly get a a, a suit for the mur- for the uh, for the funeral, I would never release a crime scene in within a matter of hours. I don't care if it was a suicide that we knew, and they're telling us, and they're on 911. I no way we're going to process that scene. So I didn't understand that. There's just so many. And then they don't want to, to take responsibility because that 96 hour hold, why wasn't there going more, uh, more done with that and kept him in a, in a psychiatric ward a lot longer than what he was. And another thing, Vicki had an open case from division of aging in the state of Missouri. I had called and did a hotline call because she was getting abused by him and the husband. And I'm not here to victim shame, but the husband had a tumultuous past as well. He was a, he had pled guilty to a sex crime and he, in, but in the state of Missouri, if you pled guilty and you went into a misdemeanor in the late nineties, then you weren't, uh, you weren't uh, required to register. So she, and she didn't know this till after she was married to it. So there was a lot going on in that house. It was a perfect storm for a tragedy. And I, I went in depth in that in the book and I, you know, I, I'm the last person to victim shame, but there was a lot going on in that house, a lot more than what you know, 40 minutes of an edited show can show, you know, it would, mm-hmm. but um, I, I and as far as they talk about in there, um, especially with the weapon, she says that her and Kenny, her son 
knew how to use that. It was an it was an older weapon. So the fact that that's in there, and you know, doing the research and stuff, it's something like you said. Why were the guns not removed from the home? I mean, that's just if you have a hold on someone that is going through mental health, that is the very first thing that law enforcement should be responsible to communicate and go through and ask the people in the home: Are there any weapons? You don't just ask that individual themselves and then just say, well, you know, we'll chalk it up as a loss. And I like how you're talking about rural towns because I know I'm going to have listeners that are like, well, this doesn't happen in my town. You would be amazed at the things that happen in small towns. I had an amazing guest on with me, a canine handler that we were talking about men's mental health and how it affects, you know, law enforcement. And he's talked about working in a small town, a rural town, how Things are just passed off. Things are just, you know, glazed over. It's something that you don't talk about stuff. And if you are that one person that kind of creates that wave and you bring something up, you're shunned out. You're looked as weak. You you can't be respected in that role. So I think that's huge to talk about when something as this magnitude of a tragedy happens is are we prepared as rural towns? Are they prepared to handle stuff like this, especially in that allotted time? And after reading your book and seeing, I don't think, I think this needs to get some pressure on some rural towns that changes need to be made because it makes you wonder how much is overlooked that could really affect and save somebody's life. Yeah. And that's, you know, I was a speaker for the National Alliance on Mental Illness this weekend in Jefferson City, Missouri, their national, their conference. And there was no representatives from the Boot Hill of Missouri. None. Because I asked my girl, I'm from a magical town called Popper Bluff, Missouri. And they were like, I said, is anybody else from? No, nobody. There was nobody there. And they are making some strides with the CIT, the uh, um, crisis intervention teams. But it's mm-hmm. still mental illness, even in my own family, because we tried to get um, custody of Vicky, me and my ex-husband did, before the murder. And that was... Um, conservatorship is not as easy as what the Britney Spears case made it look like. Maybe there was just a lot more money because we did that with both Vicky and Kenny. We tried to get uh, conservatorship of both of them. And um, especially when someone's married, her husband had a lot more rights than we ever thought about doing. And um, they, um, the, the mental illness, you know, mental health affects everybody. One in eight women suffer, have some type of depression and twice as much as men. And um, but women are the fastest growing population in the prison system. And they're coming from these rural counties like my sister's case. I mean, I I Mm -hmm. was a big, tough police officer. That's all I've ever done my whole life. It's been in law enforcement. I mean, they're teaching it or I'm I'm doing it. And I didn't know I I had um, Mm -hmm. some mental health conditions, you know, some post-traumatic stress and things till after this murder. And um, and. I had to really reevaluate my life and I'm not ashamed of it anymore. You know, and I, and that really makes me upset in the, in the Netflix. They, 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 Oh, well, she's crazy. You know, that that's, we got to lo- lose that word. It's a stigma. Yes, I agree. A hundred percent listeners that may have watched or listened. And, and I, I highly suggest go order her book. It's going to be in the bio. Go, go, broaden your mind. I always tell people just because something is portrayed, especially, you know, Netflix is, it's part of a media. It's part of how they want something to be pushed off as a story. So always kind of open your mind and and look at everything within that bubble of what could happen. Um, For those that are listening, and I always ask these questions that come up because they come up in my mind and, you know, listeners always ask these as well. For those that might be listening, saying, okay, your sister, there's a 911 call and she confessed because that's how 
you know, normalizing. That's how we think. What do you have to say to those listeners that may say, well, she confessed it's over. It's done. She's been convicted. And you know, why, why are you pushing? What would your answer be to that? Come on. Ain't we learned anything from making a murderer? <laughs> Brendan Dancy. I mean, come on. We've learned a lot. There's a lot of people confess. False confessions happen a lot more than what we like to think about. Even eyewitnesses are faulty. You know, uh, if you had an eyewitness to a murder, three people are going to see three different things. That's why they're not reliable. Just like false confessions, people confessed. Look at the guy who confessed to to uh, murdering John Bonet. You know that's they're they're so relevant that people confess. And how how was the confession taken? You know, if you would have looked at her victimology, which was not looked at, not looked at any of it, the five banker boxes of mental health records that we had on Vicky, and Vicky had had a stroke a year prior to this. If my sister did this. I, I would say, okay, let's just deal with it. We'll deal with it. We'll, uh, when the parole hearings come, we'll do it. But there's just so many inconsistencies. And now we've got a person in Europe that's been hurt that we don't know if Kenny did or didn't do something to. So by the by not listening and having tunnel vision, which is the most faulty thing that a criminal investigator can have, mm-hmm. um, now we've got another victim, possibly in Germany, <laughs> from the same person. And you don't know how many people have contacted me afterwards that were in Kenny's life that um, uh, that have said, you know, he he did this and stuff. I'm not trading one. Why? It makes no sense. Why would I trade one family member for another? Mm-hmm. I love both of them mm-hmm. equally. It's just I just wanted real law enforcement procedures followed, mm-hmm. not this open and shut case. Right. Which, uh, you know, I, there, you've got to make sure that you know what you're, you're doing because you're dealing with people's lives, mm-hmm. especially, you know, and this judge giving her life plus 25 years. There was a guy, um, I, I helped a lady here recently. Her son was murdered and put in a pond and she had to pump the pond herself to get his remains because law enforcement um, uh, kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. But that guy that killed her son hid the body, didn't confess, finally did say something after years of him being in this pond. He only got 19 years. My sister allegedly calls nine, And that's another thing with the 911 call. Uh, we don't know how much time had went between that. If you, yeah, it, There was more time than what we know of, probably, because nobody around them heard any shots or anything. They were in a trailer, but it was a, a very big lot that they were in. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how much time really went through that, that he had time to do whatever he did. And Kenny's very manipulative. When you read my book, you'll you'll find out about the um, the gloves. He he kept making a big deal about these gloves. And um, there was a lot of stuff that went on that I think it was just too open and shut. Mm-hmm. And to say that this and to release that crime scene so soon, there's a low card principle in law and criminal justice that says you can't go into a crime scene without depositing something. You can't come out without taking something with you. So that crime scene was contaminated the moment they let that family in to get a, get this funeral closed that, you know, the funeral isn't going to be for days anyway, because they have to do an autopsy. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't understand why the procedures weren't followed. You know, they went to the same law and enforcement Academy I did. Mm-hmm. And I, I just didn't, I, I, I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. But when I was asking questions, I was shut down and threatened with arrest and, I was like, you're going to arrest me for asking questions? I would never uh, uh, ask arrest somebody. Why would you waste the time and getting a probable cause? But that's what happens. In these small towns, they have these institutionalized families that are institutions. 
And if you're not in part of that family, you're an outsider, or you're asking too many questions, shut you down with the arrest. Mm-hmm. And and I I after the, he threatened to arrest me, I went to I was live tweeting out in front of the courthouse. I said, I'm here. Don't go to the media and say I'm hiding from you because I'm not. If you want me, I'm here because mm-hmm. I wanted my day in court. But mm-hmm. when we were filming with Netflix, I was worried I was going to get arrested. I wonder. <laughs> and um, yeah, I wondered how all of that. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm sure it's it's opening wounds on both sides for the victim's families, but also with you, because you mm-hmm. have, especially with your background and your experience, you have something to say. So I, that's why I have you on today is because there's always different angles that people have the right to speak and have a platform to speak and, and have no judgment because we all have our own opinions. And, you know, with your expertise, you have an opinion and you have something to say. So with your sister, especially, you know, when the, they were discussing, you know, her IQ level, my question that was not answered and I wanted to, to check with the law enforcement and like her being question and the recording did she have someone with her from the police department or was someone brought in due to her iq level to be an advocate so to speak for her or was she just by herself no and they knew me that's the thing right there i didn't find out till 10 o'clock at night this crime happened at eight o'clock in the morning i had to call my nephew said i because vicky usually called me like 50 million times a day after her stroke you know Mm -hmm. and i was like I haven't heard from Vicky today. I, and my, I told my ex-husband, I said, I'm going to call Vicky. It was 10 o'clock. My nephew said, well, she's in jail. And I said, well, what for? He said, she what murdered her. Chris. And I was like, um, she, um, anyway, she, uh, 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 they, they had nobody there. It was an advocate for her. Uh, they And they knew who I was and they knew what I did. Uh, so they, because uh, I had mm-hmm. formed a relationship with them because of the abuse she was suffering. That amazes me that they did not have somebody there to act on her behalf, not obviously speak for her, but somebody that may have experience. I mean, when we're talking about mental health on its own, that should be something that is held with caution. And then we're talking about mental disabilities. I mean, that is crucial. Like you said, like you brought up, we're talking about making a murderer, Brendan Dassey. It takes something so tragic to happen to an individual for people in law enforcement to be like, Hey, you know what? That isn't right. So I have concern with that. And I mean, everyone laughs, my family, you know, my boyfriend, he's like, man, you're really getting into this kind of stuff. And I said, when, when does it come up that Advocates are required when it comes to mental capacity like this, because you see that they are able to be coerced, I guess is the best word to say it, or, and they feel almost that sense of guilt of, well, I've been in situations that I just have to say this or feel this way. And it reverts them back to even past childhood, PTSD, trauma. So that amazes me that she was not only interviewed and brought in, but there was no advocate there. And the one advocate who is in law enforcement and is her family member is you. And you were never notified. That's just mind blowing to me. No. And they knew me because I called that. I looked at my phone records. I'd called them 89 times in one month and told them, you know, that something's going to happen. I kept telling them they go, but you know, in Missouri, they have officer discretion and they can, if they make an arrest they make an arrest, but there is a law that they, if they come out in 12 hours, somebody has to get out of the house mm-hmm. or could be arrested. But they, um, it was a small rural time. The town was 800 people that they lived in and they knew exactly who I was and what I did. And that, cause I'd had lengthy conversations about law enforcement procedures and stuff with them, not like telling them, it, but just like, you know, mm-hmm. talk and shop with them. 
So they knew me. They knew my phone number. They knew how to get a hold of me. I said, you can call me anytime. And, um, but they didn't. They kept my sister there. They kept, they, and um, she would confess to anything if you, if you told her to. You know, when, and you have to look at the victimology. And I think that this is where the de- defense didn't do a good enough job. And I tried to help public defenders. I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll t- take my expertise. I will, um, I will um, help you all I can. I'm a, I'm a free investigator for you. And um, they uh, they didn't look at the victimology of her and her bring up the, a lot of this stuff. But I don't think it would have helped because this judge was elected by this family. And the, and, the, and I say that with a lot. this judge has a lot of the problems too because these these are all elected officials. You know, and when you've got a town, a, a county of 21,000 people and this family has eight children in it, plus their spouses, plus the aunt and uncles, plus, you know, they make up a majority of this county. My sister didn't have a chance, even though she got a change of venue to the next county over. She didn't have a chance at all. And that's what I think was great about making a murder. They show that these little these institutionalized families, institutional families do this stuff and that they have these same things like. Um, you know, with Stephen Avery, supposedly was sexually harassing the, the deputy that was friends of here. And, 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 you know, that's that's what happens, you know, with the with, with these smaller towns. That's what I tried to put forward this weekend when I was talking to the NAMI people was that it's not coming from St. Louis and Kansas City. It's coming from these mm-hmm. rural counties that don't have resources, don't have mental health facilities. The the nearest women's shelter for my sister was 80 miles. That might as well have been on the moon for someone that has a, like a 15-year-old car with living on mm-hmm. fixed income. You know, that's that that's the things we have to think about, the resources and where where you're at. So I um you know a lot of people want to think it's a case of denial. I I, I don't care because I, I deal in facts and that's what I was dealing in, in this case. And I tried to, and, but when I tried to make it forward, you know, the, you know, I was shut down and everything. Victoria's had um, her nose broken. She's had three ribs broken since she's been incarcerated uh, by guards, uh, especially when she was in the, the rural, uh, she never got out of jail. And uh, so she, she's had uh, some problems. And then I would tr- call down there, Hey, you know, she uh, is, um, this is her mental health condition. Let's talk about it. Let's get some mommy sources down there. Let's talk, let's get CIT in there to talk to you about how to deal with somebody like her, but they have no clue. And we've made these jails, our new uh, mental yeah. health facilities. <laughs> and that's where they're getting most of the help. So if with all the facts and with all the information and, and you writing the book, um, if you were to put all of us for myself as the host and the listeners, if you were to put us back in that situation, in that house, on the day that literally changed so many people's lives, uh, May 14th of 2013, we're going to be right there in that moment. What do you think happened in that day? If we were to be there on the outside, what do you think happened? I think that Kenny got up early and Kenny is a person who is like my mom. Revenge is not a concept to them. It's a way of a, a living creature. And I think that he had been plotting this the whole time when he was in the mental health institution uh, for the, the three days. And then they got home late the fourth day. So that saved Chris's life and Biggie's life probably. Uh, and then he was like, he got up really early, went to the store and bought something and then came back. And then he said, Oh, this is my chance. This is my chance. And um, 
loaded the gun. It was a six shell gun because I knew this gun very well. I, I trained with this gun. It was one of my target uh, guns when I was going through police academy. So it has slow trigger on it. So uh, Vicky had been had 14 medicines in her system at the time. Painkillers uh, a lot because she was in a lot of pain because of her stroke. So she's asleep. She hears that gun go off and then finally gets up after the first six are, are, are shot. She comes in there. Kenny's already reloaded by this time because Kenny is six foot six. Vicky's five foot six. She's a tiny little woman because uh, I'm five nine. So mm-hmm. I think she's tiny. And um, that's where you get some of the blood splatter in her nose. She has blood splatter up, up in her nose because she's up fighting a six foot six guy for a gun. She either can talk him out of it or stop it and, and he or make promises to him to get him to stop. And with the gunshot residue, gunshot residue is not a beat all end all. It just says that she was in the vicinity of a gun that was shot. Let's get that straight too. That was in, that was her big smoking gun, literally. That she was a no. It's that she was in the vicinity of a gun that was shot. Okay, it's like talcum powder when it comes out of the gun, it goes and gets all over you. So uh, she has him throw and he throws the gun because the gun was thrown. It was underneath the TV across the room from where the victim was. He goes in there, starts cleaning up, and Vicky starts contemplating, you know, I know I, I can do the crime. I, I can I can pay the time. Mm-hmm. I can do this. You know, she had served a little bit of time for a DUI because uh, she had an alcohol problem. And um, so she has Kenny clean up, and then they call 911 very quickly. I mean, it's and, – uh, and, and that's what happens. She just confesses. If you listen to her 911 call, that was another thing with her 911 call. It sounds like someone – it's not like, oh my gosh, I just killed my husband, and and you just have to come get me. You know, it was like, I I just shot my husband. Very calm, too very calm, calm, in my opinion. Like too she's calm. taking Mm-mm. me too. She's taking the she's she's like showing up for work. This is something she doesn't want to do, but she's going to do it. That's what it sounded like to me. I don't know anybody else, but. Because I tried to think of this objectively, like I write in the book, I didn't want to go into this as a cop. I wanted to go in this as an aunt that was trying to clean up a tragedy, you know, I, that was trying to take care of mental health people. And I I didn't want this and I didn't want to get involved. But man, those, everything just kept clicking in my face so much that it's like, I got to say something because this just isn't right. Because if I take an oath and I'm going to protect and serve, well, Damn right, I'm going to protect and serve, and this is this just wasn't justice. No, and I was trying to help them. You know, I called immediately and and tried to get them. They didn't call me back for three days till after the murder, which makes you wonder what was discussed or or planned. I mean, I hate saying planned, but you know, we've all seen all these other shows that it happens that it's affecting people's lives and it's ruining lives. That that's a lot of time span in three days that can happen. There's a lot that can be arranged or, you know, kind of manipulated at some point, but I like that you bring up that 911. I, I think I've replayed that a hundred times because when we listened to 911 tapes, my mom was a 911 dispatcher um, here in the giant state uh, in Arizona in for Phoenix PD. And it's interesting because I had her listen and I'm like, I'm not going to say this is coming up. I know it's coming, but I just, and she's like, okay, that's weird. That's too calm and constructed. And I said, it's too simple. It's almost like a script of, I know what I have to say. I've worked with, um, you know, mentally challenged or disabled individuals, both adults and children. And when you give them a description of this is what's going to happen, 
they live based on the next moment, not what the future looks like. It's just in the right now. And it seemed so simple to, like you said, of this is what I have to do. I'm going to do it. And then once that call is done, then I, I, I'm done. Like I can just let go. It was just weird. And I, that's why I was, I reached out to find you. Cause I'm like, this just doesn't sit well. I mean, when you confess to a murder and you're stating that not only was it your husband, your partner, your spouse, but that you did it, there has to be some form of panic or concern. And there's nothing, there's no tone. It's just flat. That 911 call is amazing to me. Right. And if you've talked to Vicki at any time, are you serious? she's a very peppy person, even, you know, cause abused children know how to make the best out of any situation. And that's why I got the title of my book at, if you can't, can't cry and you can't come here no more, because uh, I, she was very peppy the first time I seen her in jail, happier than I'd seen her in, in years. That has to tell you how bad her life was outside mm-hmm. of jail. And uh, I, I couldn't quit crying these big, ugly tears. And we're big Missouri girls. We don't cry. And uh, I, uh, she said, if you can't quit crying, you can't come here because I can't take your crying. Because that, that's, that was, you know, when I would be crying, my mom was abusing me. My sister would jump in. As soon as she heard me start crying, then that was it. And I think that's why I had to title this book that because it's just a, an homage to her, you know, that she uh, she did that. But uh, another thing, the prosecutor that was in this case is no longer the prosecutor of that county, the one that appeared in the Netflix show. So um, and he has plenty of time to read my yeah. book now. I, I mean, I couldn't that. stand. I really wish they would have. I mean, Netflix, if you obviously listen to some of this stuff, do a little bit better because uh I don't think that that was very appropriate of, oh, I don't have time. Everybody has time. It's just based on what we want to read and what we don't. So I found that to be very, uh, very negative. I just didn't, I didn't like that in there at all. (laughs) He would have liked me being a police officer of a case I would have brought him because I'm very thorough. Mm -hmm. And I I was very, I was very um, uh, gracious to him. I don't think he was gave me the same courtesy, but he's no longer the prosecutor. So I'm going to send him a copy of my book. See how I, he has time now. Mm-hmm. With the Netflix uh, at the very end when they talk about and they and they bring up with your sister, Victoria, when they talk about, you know, with, with Kenny, we think possibly her demeanor changed like that. It was did somebody talk to him? Did he say something? It's almost this this monumental moment of that mom mode kicking in of you know, this, I'm protecting my son. Is something wrong with him? And I think that was a very uh, moving and shifting moment. So for your sister. And I wasn't in the room for that, by the way. I want to clarify that. Really? I was not in the room for that. I was out. Uh, I was in there with her the whole time. Because, And that's, that's uh, uh, they always have someone with the offenders mm-hmm. that is there. It, it can be legal counsel or someone. She's exhausted all of her legal pills. So she said, can my sister be here? And they're like, sure. And so I sat in there with her. and. Um, uh, that I was not in the room for that because I wanted her to say, maybe confess. I wanted her to say, no, I really didn't do that. I was hoping, mm-hmm. but then they switch, you know, clever editing. They have it that I'm in there with her the whole time. I wasn't in there with her the whole time. Yeah. Cause it and I will, you're I, there. Yeah. No, I wasn't. I wasn't there at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were interviewing her about that, then when she had her hair down, I was only in there for like two minutes. And then I left because I had talked to the producers and said, Hey, I'm going to, I, I, you want to talk to her about Kenny? I want to be out of the room because I don't want to look like I'm doing it. But they, you know, the editing made it look like I was. But I wasn't. I wasn't in the room. And I will, uh, I got the text and stuff to say that I was not in there because I was outside, you know, with, and um, while she was talking, I was hoping 
that she would say something. Because at that time, when they first approached us, they were like, we're not going to talk about your book. I was like, fine, I don't care. Just I want my sister's story out. You don't have to say anything about my book. Mm -hmm. But then after they started digging into it and started looking into it, and then I think the way that that they were treated with the county officials is that they were like, oh, we're going to talk about this book. Yeah. (laughs) Because uh-huh. my book isn't just about a true crime. I don't. I'm not a true crime writer. I am a. I, I, my doctorate work is in psychology. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to show the transgenerational trauma of how we get someone to confess. It's not. A, it's not the sensation of it. It's the causation of what happened. Being on Netflix and and having this. How has this not only and this whole event? I mean, it's such a traumatic event. And I always state, it doesn't just affect those. Um, that are obviously with your sister or with the victim, it, it affects the families and it's a massive ripple in a support system and in a community. So how has this affected your life? What does your life look like now? Almost fighting for that voice and that change. What has this done for your life? I have gotten a, a lot of support from law enforcement all over the world. British police officers, when you've got an, an Iceland detective saying, hey, I will come help you. <laughs> Uh, there is uh, something to say, but um, it's. With, I, I think that I, I've got a lot of letters from women in prison that say, you know, I was convicted with a, from a rural county. Will you look into this? I mean, I my mailbox is full of, of letters mm-hmm. that um, have that. But, I, you know, I, I really think that we need to look into why women from these rural counties are getting convicted at such a high rate. And, you know, I know Missouri's a red state and they want to show that they're tough on crime and I'm, I'm good with that. But there's other mitigating factors where there there is some mental health courts, which I think Vicki should have went through a mental health court, but they didn't have it down in her part of the state. They do in other parts of the state of Missouri, not where she was at. But with my life, it really hasn't affected much. I still just am doing investigations and working and just I like to write as my passion and, and it's cathartic for me because, like you said, she wasn't the only one that was sentenced to life plus 25 years. So was I. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've tried to bridge a, a gap with my other sisters, but, you know, they they don't see mental health as a problem. They think that people should be able to pull themselves up from the bootstraps. And that doesn't always work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, you know, when I was trying to get custody of Vicky before the murder, um, they told us that's their own business. Mind yours, Betty. Don't get in. That's a family issue. They can solve it themselves. They didn't understand it was way out of everybody's wheelhouse. For those that are um, in an abusive situation, whether it's with a partner, a spouse, uh, any family member, a roommate, a stranger, anything. Uh, I've talked about domestic, domestic, yes, domestic violence. We've talked about sexual assault because those kind of go in line together. Um, it's very hard especially for victims to understand that there is a way out. Um, They don't want to burden other people, especially family members with their problems. Um, And she does stress a lot that, you know, there was many times that she feared that she was going to lose her life because of the abuse. She would reach out to you. And it amazes me that nothing in regards to mental health um, and disability, nothing was provided as an advocacy for her. It was just no, and this judge uh, at the same times they were sentencing, the family was up there. They got to say theirs, and I got to say mine. And the family said, "Well, you know us, judge." And while they were doing, they were they were talking to me about my sister. The prosecutor was not supposed to speak. It was supposed to be just me, me pleading to the judge for my sister. He goes, "There's only one victim here," and I'm like, "You're not supposed to speak." 
And that's what I was thinking. You're not supposed to say anything. Mm-hmm. See, that's what it is. It's my these families. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everyone. And that's what you have in these little small counties. And that's why you've got such a high rate of women getting um, sent to DOC, uh, Department of Corrections, from them. Mm-hmm. And they don't, you know, and uh, um, there's a really famous case in Missouri called the Patty Pruitt case where she was a sexual assault victim and she's in uh, prison for her husband's murder as well. She's mm-hmm. actually by Vicky, and um, there's a lot of parallels because they both come from rural counties. But and, and when you got a judge that's fighting, a prosecutor that's fighting to keep them from testing DNA, which might find the real killer if there is a real killer, mm-hmm. that's a problem. I, I mean, I, I I just don't understand it. A prosecutor's job is to zealously pursue justice. That's what I teach my criminology students. Mm-hmm. What, what are you really zealously pursuing justice by putting a woman that's got an IQ of 75 that just had a stroke a year prior to this that has hemorrhagic strokes often in prison for life plus 25 years? Who's that? Who's that helping? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask what being that she had life plus 25 years, what in, in your contact, how often do you speak to her? How is she doing? What does life look like for her now with her? with her being incarcerated and mental health not being something that's taken care of in these correctional facilities. How is she doing? What does life look like for her now? She has uh, renewed her faith. She is, uh, she teaches Bible study to the younger inmates. She's in the puppies for parole program, which she gets to work with dogs, which uh, she's a big, that's one thing that she's always loved is animals and little kids. And she even has her dog tattooed on her shoulder. Um, I just seen her. Uh, a few days ago, I actually was in Missouri doing that uh, conference and I got to see her and um, her life is happier now that she's in prison than she was when she was out. That's how bad her life was. And I think the guards uh, have uh, the ones who've read the book and seen the and seen the Netflix. They know that there's a possibility that they're dealing with someone who shouldn't be in where she is. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, they do their job. They you know, she, she gets in trouble. She gets in trouble. But um, she has been really good. Um and she is, she gets to see a psychiatrist once a month. And they, the only problem we've had is with her meds, you know, making sure she gets her meds and they know, Oh, it's Victoria's sisters on the phone about her meds again. Um, because, um, you know, and, but we, ha- I shouldn't have to be an advocate. They shouldn't have, you know, they, they should have to, you know, do what do what they need to be doing, but her life is, is, is actually better. <laughs> I hate to say that, um, because she's not being a, a abused maybe in the way she was with, you know, the husband and, uh, Kenny. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she, and she, her meds are regulated out. She can go to, but she's an abuse, a child of abuse. She knows how to make the best of the worst situations. I've seen my sister abused horrifically by my mom and just to go and act like it's just, that's just Tuesday to her, mm-hmm. you know, and that, she makes the best out of every situation. And, She's just a, a light. You know, one of the guards told me, they said that um, she's a dear soul. Mm. And that um, she, and, and she does. And I, I just, I wish that the victim's family would see past their hurt and anger and see what really, you know, not just buy into what law enforcement told them and look at the actual evidence. And, you know, it may be circumstantial. They're, they're, they're relying so heavily on, gunshot residue, which a lot of states don't even rely on. (laughs) And they're relying very heavily on uh, that. And and they talked to Kenny for 40 minutes. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about killing anybody until, until Kenny called 911 and said he was going to kill somebody. Uh And in that, 
in that home, there were three people that day. And mm -hmm. obviously one was the victim of murder and there's two remaining people that were there that are able to tell a story. So when you think about putting someone in prison for life and only interviewing that other individual for 40 minutes is unheard of to me. I mean, we see all of these, I mean, they're everywhere. They're all over TV. They're all over Netflix. They're all over cable, everything of, you know, oh, I spent hours and hours and hours being interrogated and questioned and but 40 minutes, that's all it took was 40 minutes, 40 minutes. 40 minutes and the lack of interviewing. What, what could that have led to is my question. If you would have taken the time, what could that have, what would Victoria's life look like? How different would everyone's lives be? And now that you said that there's another case, a homicide case that's open overseas, like that could have saved someone's life. <laughs> we don't know what's happened between them because he's been over in Europe since 2016. Mm -hmm. And he's been homeless. We don't know exactly what he's been up to over there. I I do know that I, I went over to Germany and tried to get him home. And on my Facebook author page, I, I actually put a video up of when we found him. And he was trying to not want to come back. And um, what I, I think that there should have been more caution. I would have rather them erred on the side of caution than to have made a rush to judgment. Oh, we got a confession. Well, we're done. We're done. And, you know, take the time, process it. If you, you know, I, I worked with the FBI in St. Louis on, and when I was a de detective and I was assigned to the FBI. So I know that they could have had the ERT team come down there with no cost to their taxpayers. The evidence recovery team from the FBI could have come down there and process that scene if they needed to. Because I've been with the FBI when we've done that. And I, I know that they could, but they didn't. They had a rush to judgment. They had this victim's family who's very influential and had a lot of votes for them. Mm -hmm. And, and then now, you know, they just, they, it was a rush to judgment instead of doing procedures. The low card principle, make sure nobody's going in there and not taking things out. Um, get, a, get him on interview. Pull his two years, do, do the work I did. I pulled his I called the police department of the city he lived in that was in the same county, same county. And I said, can I, I have $200. Can I get as many reports as I can? And they go, Betty, we don't have enough paper to print out how many reports he's had in the two years prior to the murder. So they sent me a stack this thick of, of things. And it was just an escalation of violence. And I, I don't know. I mean, and I don't want to see my nephew in, you know, incarcerated for the rest of his life. He needs to be in a mental health facility and, and uh, taken care of. And that's why I, it's not denial. It's just, okay, let's talk about the facts. If you can find something that re refutes me, I'm more than, I, you know, I'm open-minded. Let me see it. I'm from a show me state. Show me, you know, <laughs> I, I don't understand, but you ain't, you ain't showed me anything yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was teaching in Ferguson. I was teaching policing during the unrest. So I was dealing with my kids trying to learn how to go into law enforcement from a different racial background and then dealing with my sisters from this rural area at night. So I, I had that dichotomy of these two different uh, uh, types uh, from the same state. <laughs> They'll sell, sell same laws, but you know, mm -hmm. whatever, uh, you know, if they have something that's irreprovable besides this gunshot residue, which is not sell, fell safe, mm -hmm. you know, that's, then that's another thing. With listeners, um, to close up this episode, I highly suggest, one, keep your mind open. I always suggest that with any topic that we talk about. Um, 
and two, understanding that just because something may not happen in your state or your county or your town doesn't mean that it's not happening in other parts of the country and all over the world. I think this is very important that we always sit and look at all sides and all possibilities before we rush to a conclusion. Um, I really think that that's important, especially specifically with this case. We need to look at somebody's background. We need to look at how they were raised and almost this protective role that she's had ever since she was 7, 11, 15. I mean, it's just progressing. Um, You made a statement that, you know, your mom was very abusive to your sister. Uh, When you would go into and get in trouble, she would take that attention away from you in order to almost take the beating. And you made a comment that really just affected me wholly because you said, she seeing Victoria beat, that was the first time you'd ever seen someone bleed. And (laughs) and it's incredible to me because I think from such an early age, she took on the role of being responsible for everyone else's pain, for everyone else's mistakes, and almost felt that her role in this life was to be punished. So when this happened, and especially from the viewpoint of what you write in your book, if her son did this. If Kenny did this, she automatically took on that role of this is this is what I'm used to my entire life. That age that we learn behavior is so crucial. So I think that it was very unjust that the police department did not look at how she was raised. She did, she doesn't know any different, I think is is what I took from it. And then you add on being a mother and feeling that almost guilt and punishment of I wasn't the best mom. So I look at it with my opinion and my viewpoint of from a mother's standpoint, she figured he has the rest of his life and I need to do what I can to be, to step up and be a mom that she felt she couldn't be prior. Yeah. And that's one thing I would, I specialize in, in crimes against person. I'm a certified sexual, sexual assault investigator. So I, that was my forte. I, that's what I work with the FBI doing uh, missing persons cases and sexual assault cases. So Victimology is very important. It's a part of the crime. That's why it's it's not just in victimology on both ends. If you watch any of the other cases on I Am a Murderer, um, I hate that name. I am a killer, but I hate that title. But uh, I, I, um, I I don't like it. But uh, I, I I give them a little bit of lax because they're a British company. So I think maybe it's a different connotation, a cultural thing. But um, I a lot of those have similar pasts in my sister, and it's not that they're sympathizing so that we don't hear from the killers. I mean, if we do, it's some sensational Dahmer type thing. And I don't want to hear that. I want to hear how did we get to this point? And how do we prevent it in the past? Cause I'm all about stopping crime, preventing crime. Mm-hmm. So how do we get to, you know, and we got to look into mental health conditions and, and, uh, and especially for the officers and, you know, I, me coming out, I had, po- I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, not just from my childhood, but from being a police officer as well. Mm -hmm. It's breaking that cycle and understanding that mental health uh, needs to definitely be looked at, especially with investigations, because in order to break the cycle, we need to understand, I think we need to dive in and and understand mental health more. Um, And I definitely think that needs to be part of the training in Academy, not only like you said, for, for those that are coming in um, with you know, their stories or confessions or whatever that may be, but also for police officers, there's need, there needs to be more attention to mental health. So I appreciate you so much for coming on and spending your time. Um, I wish nothing but the best for you as well as your sister. 
And I will be putting your information for your book. Listeners, please have an open mind, read, get educated. And I always say, you may just change your mind on what you thought was the case versus what now may be a point of change. So I wish you guys nothing but the best. And again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Little Bit of Life. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow on your favorite platform and interact with the podcast Facebook as well as on Instagram at littlecute1az. We'll see you next time.